Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, where we are cutting criticism of the government by three quarters until the end of August and giving ourselves a £1,000 bonus for every old Brexit joke we resurrect from 2017. I'm Andrew Harrison and providing a powerful stimulus this week are two of our regulars. <laughs> Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Best of Britain and ever-dependable host of our little sibling podcast, The Bunker. Hello, Naomi. How are you doing? Hello. How are you? All right, not bad. You did. Uh, you interviewed comedian and uh, fellow vegan comedian vegan Carl Donnelly uh, for the for the Bunker Daily this week about COVID's impact on the comedy circuit. And then, like magic, the government announced 1.5 billion uh, of rescue package for the arts. Can you use your new magic powers to get some Sunak cash for podcasts? Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Look, don't joke, because uh, the government are about to get the old band back together for a second round of get ready for Brexit advertising spending. Um, and they're bound to sponsor our podcast again, except this time uh, it's going to be get ready for food and medicine shortages because we fucked up <laughs> negotiations with Europe and we're not ready for WTO terms either. Mm. The, the, the kind of arts intervention did surprise everyone on its scale, but it was it was too mm. late for a lot of places like the Nuffield Southampton Theatres, which have closed closed permanently. Do we yet know how far this subsidy is going to go in terms of preserving the arts sector? Um, well, I mean, look, the, the package is, of course, very welcome uh, and better late than never, et cetera, et cetera, although potentially too late for, for some theatres that had already um, made the very difficult decision that they would have to close. Um, but I think one of the, the points that's been made um, that you know is a negative about this announcement is that unless there's some support for self-employed performers, um, and again, we saw the self-employed overlooked uh, in the budget today, or the, you know, the sort of interim budget thing today, um, as well as for venues, there won't be any content to put inside the venues because the arts is incredibly fragmented. People aren't generally directly employed. You know, they freelance. I don't need to tell you guys any of this because this is your world. But uh, the, the violinist Tamsin Little tweeted that 40% of musicians have had no income no furlough and no government support since March. Um, I know of a costume designer that worked for regional theatres who's chosen to to retire early uh, because the hill to climb back into break-even now is just too hard. So regional arts centres are often the heart of a local community. um, And, uh, you know, if if the government really want this levelling up agenda to work, they need to devolve um, a lot of this decision-making and grant-making from that that centralised fund uh, and not keep it all in Westminster. And I think think that's a bit that's missing. Good news for the arts, though. Alexandreo is back in the UK. To resurrect the art all on his own. Wonderful. (laughs) Also with us, Ben Stewart is one quarter of performance protest artists led by donkeys. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? All right. Not bad. Uh, Your latest campaign is about the government's timeline of failure, narrated by friend of the show Gavin Esler and projected onto Bernard Castle. And it's one of your longest videos yet. Was this a challenge in trying to work out what to leave out? Because there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so much when you look at the litany of incompetence of which this government is guilty. Like, We wanted to do the whole thing in 
two minutes. I mean, who has time to watch a 10 minute video at the moment when you're kind of doing your kind of shopping food order and hoarding toilet paper, etc. Um, but we thought there was so much to say that we would do it in 10 minutes and managed to get a special dispensation from Twitter to post a 10 minute video. This project began actually back in April when we were looking at all of the failures at the start of the COVID crisis and thought we wanted to document them in one place. So we started a project on the website appeasement.org. We're trying to make the case that Johnson's more of a Chamberlain than a Churchill and started actually documenting in detail each of the failures. But of course, who has time to read through all of that? And we wanted something that people who were arguing with their right wing uncle could just say, send to them and say, look, how can you possibly defend this? Um, so we started working on this film and it was very hard to leave stuff out because there's so much important stuff there. But, you know, stuff like even the mess around the schools and the testing debacle and the bullshit 100,000 target that Hancock set and then artificially met, we cut from the film because we wanted to make it incredibly shareable and we we launched it last week by projecting it onto barnard castle where else would you do that and i think mm. it was shareable it's got about fifty-five thousand shares across uh, social media and um 1.2 million views on facebook and getting that way on twitter so hopefully it's been useful for people i had originally narrated it but listening back and as listeners will tell now from my voice now it was incredibly unengaging so we are um anti-brexit hero gavin esler with that iconic news night um voice whether he would narrate it and he kindly said yes and we got it up there and it's yeah it's been a success i think and people can watch it on twitter without actually having to drive to bernard castle to test their eyesight uh, people should not drive to Barnard Castle to test their eyesight. People should instead go onto Twitter and Facebook and um, watch it on our channels. Um, Excellent. And, um, it's only part one, though. We have to work on part two now. It ended with um, May the 4th, with us having the highest death toll in Europe. And part two will go from then up to Super, Sat- Super Saturday. Sorry, I hate that phrase. It comes Yeah, it's horrible, war. isn't it? It's a horrible phrase. It will go from there until June, the whatever Super Saturday was. Good Lord, the Lord of the Rings of uh, coronavirus. (laughs) Our guest this week is a professor of organisation studies at Royal Holloway University. He began blogging about Brexit around the time of the referendum. He's recently hit a milestone of four million page views. He comes recommended by Jonathan Dimbleby and fellow Brexit expert David Allen Green. It's Chris Gray. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Romaniacs. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for for having me on. He also comes recommended by me, by the way. Yes, but that's that's naturally (laughs) the case, isn't it? What, Chris, what, what for, recommendation could be higher? Yes. Chris, firstly, what is organisation studies and why does it apply to Brexit? Shouldn't this be more for the Department of Chaos Magic? Oh, cracky. You know, I've, I've been working in this organisation studies field for, for, for about 30 years and I still haven't found a, a good answer to that. But, I mean, in <laughs> principle, it's just the study of anything and everything to do with organisations. Um, so it's a bit like, you know, geographers now, they say, well, we study space and everything's in, it happens in space and therefore we study everything. And we say, well, everything is organised in some way, except things that are disorganised, but they're still of interest to us. So maybe that's Brexit. But I think the more specific connection is, is that I've done a lot of work on, um, on sort of organisations and how they uh, have to operate within particular regulatory environments. So as soon as Brexit came along, that was obviously a huge deal for... For, 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 for kind of business regulation issues. So that was my in, really. But then I've expanded somehow into being a sort of... Um, there is this word, isn't there, Brexitologist now. So maybe that's what I've become. Mm. So as, as a key Brexitologist who's been covering it as obsessively uh, as we have, what for you is the most 
emblematic Brexit moment, the thing that encapsulates everything? I mean, is it is it the rebranding of No Deal as an Australian type deal, or maybe even this week Johnson telling businesses in Northern Ireland that uh, you know that Johnson had told them that if they got customers forms, they should throw them in the bin and ring him up. And then a few weeks later, he applies to the EU for permission to put up customs posts. Yeah, I mean, you know, those are the most recent things, aren't they? I, I, I don't know. I think, I think if I were to choose one moment, it would be, it would be the row that broke broke out when when it emerged that um, that Britain wouldn't be able to put forward uh, cities to be considered to be the uh, to be the European city of culture. And if you remember, that was kind of this terrible thing. Well, what, why not? And then people started kind of saying, you know. But um, uh, but but um, you know Oslo has been and, and and Oslo's in Norway. But by that time they'd already ruled out the Norwegian option. And then we're sort of talking about other countries which were seeking accession to the EU. And 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 there was suddenly this sort of idea of oh this is terribly unfair that we're being excluded. And you kind of thought you know but but that's what you voted for. You voted to yeah. to, to kind of exclude yourselves. And you know that's just one example, isn't it? That that that's, that 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 came to my mind. But all the way along, the kind of the, you know, often I kind of, I sometimes draw the kind of comparison of saying that sometimes people are pro Brexit. They almost talk as if, as if, as if Britain were the aggrieved party who was being forced out of Europe and had to try and sort of claw as much back as it, it could, as opposed to, as opposed to having sort of chosen to do that. On this week's podcast, we're going to look at Rishi Sunak's interventions to stave off an economic crisis. What are they? Will they work? And should he start choosing curtains for number 10 yet? All that and more after one big reminder from Naomi. If you're a Patreon backer and you're listening on Thursday, we hope you'll be joining us tonight on our latest live stream with The Bunker at 8pm. I'll be joining Dorian, Roz, Helen Lewis, Aisha Hazarika and, yes, I don't know how to act, because he's bringing sexy back. Alexandreou is joining <laughs> us too for an hour of top quality debate, scouring the dregs of the drinks cupboard and audience questions too. There's still time to ask your questions, so head over to our Patreon page and ask yours. Everyone else, well, it's Friday and uh, you've missed it. But don't worry, video and audio recordings are going up at the weekend for Patreon backers, so why not sign up and get access? Plus, of course, an early bird ad-free version of the podcast every week and those mugs and T-shirts too. Just search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Thanks, Naomi. First up this week, Chancellor Rishi Sunak unveils his summer statement this, this afternoon, just before we recorded the podcast. Usually they wait until we finished. He's announcing a temporary cut of VAT from 20% to 5% for the hospitality, tourism and attractions sectors, a temporary change in stamp duty, a £2 million green homes grant and a job retention scheme to bring back furloughed staff. Plus, there's a 50% eat out to help out voucher, which makes the government sound like the provisional wing of Deliveroo. The furlough scheme itself <laughs> will end. Leaving the furlough scheme open forever gives people false hope, he said, that it will always be possible to return to jobs that they had before. But meanwhile, the beauty industry, worth £27 billion to the British economy, has no date for a restart and no government support forthcoming. But hey, we could all play village cricket, so that's OK. Naomi, so much of this has been leaked beforehand that it looked like it was going to be something of a damp script, but it was mm. actually something on quite substantial scale. What did you think? Have you seen stuff on this... Uh this uh, scale before? Uh, no. Um, and, you know, this is another splurge from the Chancellor um, and people will be excited about eating for Britain, uh, even if the slogan eat out to help out uh, can only have been thought up by a man. Um, but you Keep know, it classy, please. Yeah, look, there's clearly still huge concern 
that this package doesn't go far enough. Um, the furlough scheme hasn't been extended, for instance, and that was despite calls from lots of employers and the CBI. Uh, the voucher scheme that, that um, itself is a downgraded version uh, of a suggestion from the Resolution Foundation to give every adult £500 to spend across damaged sectors. Uh, and so there's real concern that this just doesn't go far enough, even though it's huge. Um, and of course, there's the elephant in the room that no one uh, mentioned, which is the impact of leaving the transition period at the end of the year and what that will do to so many sectors like manufacturing and financial services. And the government has been trying to brand this as a plan for jobs. In fact, there's a weird kind of strobing post on uh, on uh, Rishi Sunak's Twitter page, which is like, you know, look at, you know, when you look at the hypnotode on, on Futurama and it just flashes and flashes, just says plan for jobs, plan for jobs, plan for jobs. There's like a thousand pounds to pay, bring someone back from furlough, two billion pound fund for trainees and work experience. And yet, as you mentioned at the top of the show, there's nothing for the self-employed. Does the government understand the kind of working world that it has created with, you know, zero hours contracts mm-hmm. and so forth? Do they understand the, the world that most people are in? I mean, look, the the plan is very targeted at the unemployed um, and tackling unemployment or averting worse unemployment rather than helping those who are self-employed and may well at the moment, of course, be uh, underemployed. And maybe we'll hear something more for them uh, announced later. And I very much hope that we do. But yes, you're right. We are we're not in the 1980s anymore, the early 1980s. Um, Far more people uh, are now self-employed than the last time we faced huge unemployment. The jobs market is very different. Workers' rights have been eroded. And if the goal of, uh, you know, Sunak's announcement has been, you know, was about um, starting economic growth again um, and keeping people off benefits and off, off the government payroll, then you can't, you know, ignore this enormous section of the job markets that is now self-employed. How long do you think we are from listeners sending us uh, angry messages saying, Naomi, stop calling him Rishi, stop calling him by his first name, yeah. stop calling him Sunak? Or, uh, Im- Im- imminent. But it's the dishy Rishi <laughs> thing, isn't it? It's the, it's the dishy Rishi. The oh, Rishi, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Ben, with your Greenpeace hat on, there's two there's two billion pounds being made available for people to add insulation to their homes, which was had been described by uh, uh, as this is not going to excite Boris Johnson because it's kind of boring. He likes bridges and large things, you know, ridiculous, conspicuous projects. But this is surely a good thing. It's going to create jobs. It's going to be good for the environment. Is is it hard once a government has, got, has okayed something like this to kind of roll it back the way Cameron binned the green crap, if you can think back that far? Yeah, I think it's quite easy because it happens all the time. I mean, look, something similar, you know, was launched in the early 2010s by the Cameron government um, for home insulation and the pot ran dry pretty quickly. So we'll see what this government's long-term commitment is to energy efficiency. But let's remember, Germany is putting 40 billion euros into its green recovery of its 130 billion uh, euro stimulus package. All of the car money in Germany, all of the money going to to car building and to protecting the car industry is going to electric car manufacturing. When you think about how powerful the German car industry has been over the years, blocking progressive Mm. policies in Europe, etc., this is a sea change and shows that Merkel really gets it. Macron's putting 15 billion euros into a climate-focused recovery package. So in France, the airlines aren't getting bailed out without any serious climate plan. And Sunak, Sunak, not Rishi, has put three mm-hmm. billion quid on the table. So I think you know this government seems a bit more interested in biodiversity than climate change, because climate is a slog. Cummings is reportedly not that interested in it, which is um, 
It's kind of odd for someone who regards himself. That's the end of that, then. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and, and it's odd for someone who regards himself as a, as a super forecaster. No doubt when we lose the Arctic sea ice, he'll go back and amend his blog to show he predicted that would happen back in 2020. <laughs> you know, a truly visionary government would be marrying up the commitment to phase out petrol and diesel cars by 2035 and be putting in place incentives to develop a world-class, sorry, that phrase again, um, electric car industry here. So, you know, we're up against the Chinese here who make no bones about their desire to destroy the European car industry by going electric. You know, so the agenda that the Brexiteers think can be delivered by leaving the EU, that is, you know, global Britain building a high-tech, innovative economy fit for the 21st century, could actually be delivered by truly investing heavily in the green recovery, which is exactly why they're not doing it. How much of this is Rishi Sunak anyway, though? Because this is a guy who spads are put in place by Cummings. They all report to Cummings. Um, you know, are, are we essentially looking at a, a, a brave, new, smiling face oh. on the same policy engine room? Well, I mean, how much of any of this is Sunak or Cummings or indeed Carrie Simons, who was an environmental campaigner in the period between leaving Conservative central office and moving into number 10? And there's, I guess there's that question, how independent is Sunak at the moment? I mean, obviously, he was appointed to the job on the proviso that he accepts conditions that Sajid Javid deemed unacceptable. And he was meant to be a weak chancellor controlled from number 10, which of course means in practice control by Cummings. But then obviously something odd happened through a, a combination of Johnson's perceived incompetence and Sunak's perceived competence early in the COVID crisis. Suddenly Sunak becomes unsackable. Now, you know, I'm not a political reporter. I don't speak to people who work in number 10 and number 11 Downing Street, but one suspects that we'll soon learn from people who do just how much of this mini budget was Sunak's and how much was number 10's. And we'll learn perhaps the extent to which Sunak is exercising his, his unexpected power as a force not wholly reliant on the good grace of, of Dominic Cummings. You know, as, as Naomi said earlier, Sunak is running an independent comms and branding operation here. You know, I don't like the font and the colour scheme he uses, but by God, he's got one and he's not afraid to use it. He's building a brand and, and that brand is is empathy and competence. And that sets him squarely against the brand that Johnson is developing, possibly um, in a way that he doesn't want to, which is not being empathic and being incompetent. So, you know, of course, any chance is likely to be popular when they're handing out VAT cuts and vouchers for half half price weekly tikka masalas and etc. But when unemployment hits four million that might change. But at the moment, one does wonder whether number 10 looks at Sunak in the way that Blair's number 10 once looks at Mo Molan. Yeah. Chris Gray, what did, what did you make of the, uh, the the spending splurge right after um, the other spending splurge at the weekend? Oh, well, sorry. I mean, well, one thing I think about, about Sunak is, um, I mean, I mean, Sunak was a, a leader at the time of the, the referendum. Um, and yet he kind of doesn't have that 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 sort of persona. I mean, it, you know, he doesn't he doesn't kind of come across as being as being kind of sort of totally totally mad or totally weird like some of the the, the hardcore people do. I mean, like, <laughs> thinking particularly of uh, uh, the other day, you know, kind of Marc Francois's sort of bizarre 
intervention in the select committee, um, which was, you know, very, uh, uh, talking about the um, Cummings kind of coming for the head of the defence stuff. Um, it was very much and, my dad will come and get you if you don't do what I want, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. And, 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 you know, and, and Sunak doesn't have that, that gracelessness. And that's a, that's, mm. a, a, that's a political advantage to him. I mean, I, I, I also can kind of feel at a personal level, I, I've got to the age where I'm constantly sort of dumbfounded by the fact of how young politicians seem, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, I guess when you're sort of growing up and politicians are sort of older and you have this, this perception of them as, as being, you know, sort of adults in 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 the room, and you know, we had a brief a brief period uh, a couple of years ago, you know, when the leaders of the main parties were were um, you know Theresa May and um, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, and Vincent Cable, and uh, and um, you know, okay, they were useless, but they were they they had a uselessness born of experience, you know. And I look at kind of Sunak, and and and, and he just seems you know to me to be kind of astoundingly young, but he's already kind of I think passed the test that Starmer has away in in a way of of um, of 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 seeming like a kind of an adult competent you know politicians, and he and and you can't see him sort of doing one one of those things in the same same way as, for example, defined. You know William Hague at the beginning of his leadership of the Tory Party. You know when he was caught with the baseball cap on backwards and so on, and and that and that moment a bit like Ed Miliband's bacon sandwich moment kind of broke his broke his um, broke his kind of persona, and and you can't see, well I can't see Sunak um, doing that. But uh, going to the um, going to the sort of um, but as to the question of of you know him as a future leader, which is you know bubbling away in the background. You know, again, you know, when you think back over time, it always seems to be people who are, who are, um, who are touted as future leaders. It's almost the kind of the kiss of death, and there were sort of so many of them, particularly in the sort of Thatcher era, era less in the Blair era, because Gordon Brown was always the heir apparent, but who were sort of touted for leadership and then became completely forgotten. Um, and on the substance, I mean, just very kind of quickly, I mean, I, I kind of feel as if, you know, one of the elephants in the room there is actually about sort of immigration and skills, because the assumption sort of seems to be, OK, there's some talk about training, but the assumption seems to be, you know, that in terms of, say, you know, big infrastructure projects that you can sort of move people, you know, easily into these into these jobs in construction or, or uh, and so on. And, you know, a bit like with the kind of the fruit picking thing, the assumption is, is, you know, somehow, well, you know, you can be laid off from, from one job in an office and sort of with a bit of training, you know, pick up, pick up work on a building site. And I don't, you know, don't think that's, 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 that's realistic. And, and, and a real understanding of both the age and skills profile of, of the British population is, is kind of absent from this. Naomi, um, one thing that's very clear about this sort of munificent Sunak thing is it's not very conservative, is it? It's not very no magic money tree. It's not very uh, you must pay your way. It's not very balance the books. Well, actually, I'm afraid it is uh, because the Tory party has changed. Um, it's become less economically right wing, you know, markedly less. I, I wouldn't say it was economically left wing, but it is much more progressive than it was. And it's aligned itself to the average leave voter. It's recalibrated around this new supporter base that it's got uh, cleverly. Um, And I think they're in it for the long haul, you know, sort of socially uh, right wing um, and economically less right wing. And that seems to be the new formula. Um, It's 
as I said, still more right-wing than progressive parties, but much less right-wing than it was. And that makes our jobs as Remainers much harder. Um, you know, Johnson has said that they're not going to renege on their manifesto commitment um, to not put up taxes. Uh, and they know that the country really isn't in favour of any more austerity. So what are they going to do? How are they going to fund all of this? Or are they just going to you know, keep going for ever-increasing public debt uh, or hope and pray that we can grow our way out of um, this recession? Um, if it's the latter, they're going to find that incredibly difficult because all forms of Brexit, and we're looking at you know, the, the, the very hard end of that being the only thing possible now at this stage, um, you know, make, makes that, that growth agenda incredibly difficult. Um, so no, it's not typical of the Tories of old, but we're not dealing with them. We're dealing with a, a pretty savvy uh, new political culture for the, the Conservatives. There are some, you know, very fiscally conservative backbenchers still, and they'll be grumbling. Um, but I don't think they're going to be the prevailing voice uh, in the party over the next few years. Just before we move on, I want to put this to both you, Naomi, and Chris, and Ben, if you want to weigh in as well. Uh, Just before we started recording, a rather surprising tweet emerged from Adam Payne at Business Insider. I've seen a pretty explosive letter from Trust to Gove and Sunak, which says she's worried that UK borders won't be ready for 2021. Ports might not be fully ready. Northern Ireland Protocol unlikely to be ready either. And UK plans could be challenged at the World Trade organization so we're going for a supposedly going for a wto deal which will break the rules of the wto yeah i mean something about that i mean i I mean i haven't i saw the the tweet and i haven't seen the report but but you know really the 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 the, the, there's no surprise here i mean we you know quite a lot of us have been saying this for for a long time all of the focus about the time pressure has been on is the time to do you know is the time to do a deal or not um and there hasn't been nearly enough attention to the fact that the deal or no deal, the, the kinds of things that need to be implemented are just not likely to be uh, there in place. You know, and that was always going to be the case, probably. But but that's just been massively, massively magnified by uh, by 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 coronavirus. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the leak is of interest, but the fact of the, uh, the fact of unpreparedness is really no surprise at all. Yeah, Chris is completely right. Look, the transition period was not simply about having the time to negotiate. It was also about this preparedness point, um, giving public services and businesses the time to prepare for whatever outcome occurred at the end of uh, December. No one's been preparing for anything other than coping with the, uh, you know, day-to-day catastrophe that is a global pandemic. Um, so we're not prepared. Uh, you know, some people saying, oh, is this why they wanted uh, Liam Fox to go for the WTO job? Because we're going to need a friendly face on the inside when we're facing fines for having not complied with with WTO rules if we don't get a deal by the end of the year. But, you know, as, as we're recording, I'm looking at the list on the WTO website as to who's been shortlisted uh, for the role. And at the moment, I can't see uh, Liam Fox's name on there. Hmm. Oh, anybody interesting on there that we'd know? Give me a sec. I've got to find the tweet again now. Sure. I think we can expect more of this, can't we? You know, Brexit's going from a, you know, a state of mind to a series of devilishly difficult logistical problems that require very effective administration. And, and therefore, we're going to be talking about leaks like this and stories like this for months, if not years to come. 
Mm-hmm. So the, the candidates um, uh, that are on the website at the moment is Jesus Kuri from Mexico, Ngozi Okonjo Uwela from Nigeria, Abdel Mamdu from Egypt, Tudor Ulyanovishki from Moldova, Mu Myung Hee from Korea, Amina Mohammed from Kenya, and Mohammed Al Tuaidri. I'm so sorry. For butchering these names well, from Saudi Arabia, so mm. no, none that I would yeah. recognise. But, but what this is, uh, uh, what this is also kind of going to reveal. I mean, if if if, if whether or not Fox is on on the list, but particularly if he is, is the fact that you know being being in the WTO and this sort of great fanfare, we're regaining our seat. You know, it doesn't it doesn't give you some huge kind of power. You're dependent, for example, if you were to get your nominee through, on building coalitions and relationships with 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 with, with other countries, and so. You know, it's going to. I completely agree with what Ben said. We're going to see loads and loads of this kind of stuff, and it's and it's and it's because this notion that you can escape that you can escape interdependence by jumping with one leap from the from the EU to the World Trade Organization is completely just a complete you know completely chimerical. <laughs> Brexit veteran Chris Gray is this week's guest. Chris, you've been slogging away on this one like we have almost, well, you've been at it since the very beginning. It took us a whole year to get a podcast together. Perhaps we should be giving the government department to run. How has it felt for you? I mean, it's like the story continues to to produce stuff and slowly people like us are all being proved right. The, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting because, of course, I mean, firstly, you know, I started it, I actually started it, you know, just after the, I started in September 2016. I'd, I'd written some stuff before about Brexit, but I started the blog then. And, and, um, and of course, like a, a, all the other sort of, you know, millions and billions of blogs in the world, you know, there were, nobody was reading it. And, um, and it, but it did sort of gradually take off. And so it sort of morphed from being something which was, which was, you know, more or less, you know, just a kind of a personal kind of thing. And, you know, maybe hoping some people would read it to being sort of something that's become this kind of cottage industry. So, so that now, you know, at first I would sort of post when I wanted to say something more or less often. And now there's a kind of a, a kind of sense, well, you know, there has to be a post on Friday morning. Otherwise I start getting messages saying, where is it? Where is it? Um, which is, you know, which is great, which is really kind of, which is really sort of kind of gratifying. Um, and then I kind of thought in a way, you know, that, 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 it's a bit like you know, kind of climbing a hill, and the, and the horizon keeps, you know, the, the 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 peak of the hill keeps disappearing as you, as you climb. Because I, you know, I'm always like sort of thinking, well, there probably won't be anything much to write this week, you know. And then there always is, and there always is, and 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 but at the same time, it, there's always something new to write. But at, but at the same time, it's often just sort of permutations of the same old, the same old, um, the same old dynamics, you know, that I've mm. underlain the whole process. There were, I'm looking at this week's blog, I read, read it earlier, there are two key themes to this week's post, that Brexit has got consequences that people should have known, and it's not going to be just symbolic. It's not going to be simply a change of letterheads and a change of um, sort of you know forms and, and numbers. Two, two questions. How is the former possible? How is it possible that we've got to this point with consequences that are pretty plain even to people like those of us on the podcast who, you know, our education has been by doing the podcast. You know, for instance, you've got Peter Bowen not knowing that we can't have mutual recognition of standards with the EU. And which of the the latter, the idea that Brexit isn't just symbolic, do you expect to shock people most? The fact that they will notice a real change to their lives? 
Um, I mean, on, on that latter, I mean, obviously, you know, there's still so much that we don't know about what may or may not be negotiated. But I mean, I think probably um, the thing about uh, 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 you know traveling, you know, traveling within Europe and having to use a different queue and uh, the kind of the kind of you know just the just 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 the, just the logistics of uh, of you know going on holiday or or, or or whatever it is, and I think it's just that um, there's a kind of a and I think it says this in the in the in the blog there's a kind of a uh, you know a built-in kind of assumption just that well these things kind of happen as if as if it is just by as if it is as if it's uh, you know just by nature and I mean I think you can see that for instance in all many of the kind of discussions about about freedom of movement both before and since the referendum with people being really apparently kind of amazed that on the one hand they were thinking well um uh you know, we you know we want to vote to leave the EU because we want to and end 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 freedom of movement, and on the other hand, not kind of recognising that that also meant freedom of movement for British people within within the European Union, and 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 you quite often still see people sort of saying, you know, oh yeah, but you know, we always used to, people always used to be able to go on holiday, you know, to Europe or have their you know, holiday home maybe in 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 Europe, you know, before we were in the EU. So it makes no difference, does it? So they're saying on the one hand you know it makes this huge difference in terms of ending freedom of movement but on the other hand that ending freedom of movement doesn't have any consequences for people's freedom to move um and i think that kind of disconnect between 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 the decision and, and the consequences is kind of quite profound and and all the time there's this kind of notion of you know you know oh, you know oh, oh but you know oh but surely but surely they won't do that, and that's what then flips around into a kind of punishment narrative, which is sort of, you know, oh well, the only reason why there's going to be delays at the borders is because, uh, you know, that's if that's what the EU, if that's what the EU do, then they will be sort of punishing us, and it will be down to them, and somehow not really, not really recognizing that all of these sort of things which have built up quite invisibly over the years are all suddenly going to, or potentially suddenly going to fall into complete, complete. Um, complete uh, you know uh, uh, disuse government is at the is at the very hard work stage of brexit at the moment the endless uh, unproductive um trade negotiations at what point do you think we'll be at the stage where we can take an objective look at lessons learned from brexit is it going to be how many years yeah. before people are able to step back and go okay we can look at this as as a as a, a case in political uh studies rather than a massively emotive subject that causes rows. yeah well i think you know i think i think a, a long time is the answer to that and, and of course it will get you know in, in some ways it will also get more and more difficult because 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 already the kind of the question of for example disentangling what's a brexit effect from what's a covid effect is 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 is, is, is kind of becoming difficult and and actually kind of pro-brexit people make a lot of use of that because whenever you have sort of predictions about what will happen then the response is well that's just a prediction you can't know and when you have retrospectively saying well this is what happened it's, it, then, then the response is to say oh well but you can't say it was because of brexit it was because of something else it was because of it was because of of, of you know famously in relation to the current show well it's because of diesel it's not because of brexit or or or, or something of, the, of that sort and so i think that it will be it will probably continue to be a very contested terrain the interpretation of it for you know for years or maybe for sort of for decades but, but i think maybe the other thing to sort of say is that you know we're already 
you know, four, kind of four years into the process, and we can already, I think, see certain kinds of 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 of, of patterns. Um, and I and I would sort of say maybe two of them. I mean, one is that that all the way through, there's a story of um, of Brexiters having kind of overpromised and underdelivered. So you know, we talk about the possibility, you know, the, the difficulty of the negotiations now, the possibility of no trade deal and so on. But don't forget that in the vote leave literature, it actually said, well, we will negotiate the terms first before we begin any any legal process to leave. There will be no sudden rupture, um, and then. Um, and then, and then, and then, even after Article Fifty, you still had the idea from David Davis, and, and actually even from Theresa May, although she 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 changed her mind uh, a little bit later, um, of the idea, oh well, the trade talks can come first. And there were a lot of, and still are a lot of pro-Brexit people who think that somehow the trade deal should trade the trade talks and deal should have come first, and there should never have been a financial settlement and so on. And so. Um, so, 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 so again, there was a, there was there was an overpromise and an under delivery, and then we completed phase one of the negotiations that was then meant to move to phase two, which is the trade bit, in the course of which nothing really substantive happened in terms of uh, trade negotiations, um, and then we got through to Boris Johnson's oven ready deal, but of course it, it, it you know it, it was uh, it, you know it was not that. So all the way along, I think we've we've had that process of, of over overpromising and under delivering, and in parallel a process of constant hardening of what Brexit means. But each time it hardens, it kind of gets renormalised. So the kinds of things we're talking about now in terms of what might or might not happen in January are a mile away from what was being talked about in 2016. Nomi and Ben, yeah. do you want to hop in with your yeah, questions? Yeah, sure. Um, Chris, uh, it, you know, previously you've um, talked about the the really sort of laissez-faire or almost like passive supine approach that pro-European politicians um, have taken uh, going back you know I think as far as 1975 it's fair to say where did it go wrong and and how can modern politicians avoid repeating their mistakes it feels at the moment that you know Labour aren't really prepared to talk about the you know the benefits of internationalism Um, you know most of the Lib Dem MPs don't even Um, it it, it feels sometimes like it's only the nationalist MPs in Scotland and Wales and and Northern Ireland that that talk it up yeah I mean, you know, and and I mean, there's two bits, isn't there? You know, where 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 did this all go wrong? And you know, maybe with 1975, I mean, maybe it even goes back even even further. You know, to the kinds of, you know, the the the, the ways in which in which Britain came round in the 1960s and early 70s to the idea of to the idea of of joining um, of joining um, you know what became became the EU. Um, and I think that uh, and 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 I think that that. I mean, just just very briefly to say, I mean, I think the, the 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 fact was that either there was no kind of positive case made, or the positive case made was always in these very sort of transactional terms about about the um, about 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 the economy and and so on. And, and actually, that's partly what fed into this very pervasive myth of you know, oh well, we never knew in 1975 that we were mm. that we were voting to sort of join you know kind of political, political union, union and, you know, all yeah. this thing. Even though you know you, you, it's well documented that 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 was you know that was very that was very very plainly uh, stated by. Uh, by 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 Brexit supporters, and um, sorry, I beg your pardon. By um by uh, by um Remains, campaigners to join yeah. <laughs> to, to join or to stay in the mm-hmm. EEC, um, 
And, um, and, and you know, I can remember as a, as, a, as a school child in the 1970s when um, and being in primary school and, and, and having this very, very kind of ultra, I don't know whether she was politically conservative, but I would guess ultra kind of conservative uh, headmistress. It was very much of a sort of um, a sort of a kind of, you know, kind of Margaret Thatcher kind of persona is my sort of memory of her. And being absolutely sort of delighted by this thing of that we were joining kind of Europe and she made up this song that we all had to sing about the, the, <laughs> the, the wonderful dream that kind of awaited us and so on. And so, you know, there's a very kind of yeah, interesting and complicated story, I think, about what happened to um, about about what happened to to the Conservative Party, really, as much as anything else. Um, but to come to your 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 you know your other bit, I mean, I, I kind of feel now, and I wrote about this a few weeks ago, that that the British politicians actually, and I would actually include you know pro pro Brexit politicians in this, have to sort of say, look, you know, we are at a point when Britain has left the European Union, but that doesn't mean that um, that there is that, 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 that there is there is no longer a case for seeking to have a good relationship with the European Union and not to conduct everything to, through this prism, both of hostility, but also through this mm. prism of are we a member or are we not? Well, you know, as things stand, we are not a member. And so, you know, one of the kind of rather sickly lines, I think, that, that, that is, was often kind of said about uh, from, from, from the from the Brexit people was, you know, oh, we hate the EU, but we love Europe. Well, OK, you know, there's all kinds of, non I think, nonsenses within that distinction. But, you know, if that's the case, you know, fine, you've left the EU. So could we now see a bit of this love for Europe? Yeah, quite, yeah, go for it. Yeah, right. Chris, um, Keir Starmer doesn't talk about Brexit a lot, which is sort of slightly incongruous from the former Labour um, Brexit spokesperson. You sort of you sort of imagine the, the words of Cummings, you know, he's a Remain a lawyer, ringing in his ears. We didn't even really talk about it in the run-up to June the 30th and, and the deadline for asking for an extension. How long do you think he can keep that up for? Or at some point, is he going to have to talk about Brexit? Yeah. And I mean, I was surprised that he didn't at least set down a marker to say, you know, about, about extending the transition period, um, not in the hope that it would happen and not even kind of mainlining on it, but just sort of like setting it down. Obviously, of course, you know, he can see, I'm sure, you know, the huge you know, kind of elephant trap that that the, the Cummings and Johnson would like him to fall into, so that they can you know get back onto that sort of familiar territory for them of 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 of, of you know of, of of waving the kind of the, the you know the will of the people uh, thing and 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 the remain lawyer jibe as you say, um, but I think that um, uh, but but I think that 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 he will have to talk about it. Um, certainly if it gets towards looking as if there isn't going to be any deal. And I think the way that he needs to talk about it is to wrap it into the more general line that he's, you know, I think developing quite effectively about the, about the practical incompetence of the, uh, of, 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 of the Johnson government, of, the, of, its, of its administrative incompetence, of its operational incompetence. And, 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 and to really be kind of like, you know, then sort of saying the message, look, this is not about, uh, you know, this is this is this is not to do with Remainers or Brexiters. It's to do with delivering for, if you like, for the people who voted Leave. Never mind about the people who voted Remain. And and the polling evidence. Uh, well, I think it came from Best of Britain. You know, the the, the, the Best of Britain. The, the polling evidence in terms of um, you know the red wall seats is that is that is is that people particularly really dislike the No Deal thing. The danger for Starmer, I think, is that, and this is why. 
I think many people think that a deal is now a bit more likely, that, that because the danger for Starmer is that Johnson negotiates a more or less half-assed deal and that Starmer um, uh, won't be able to sort of play the competence card because all he'll really be left with doing will be picking away at the detail of, you know, well, it's not a good deal in this respect and that respect and so on. But for most of the voting public, you know, the detail probably won't matter that much. It will just be, OK, well, there's a deal and that's and, 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 and that's that. So he needs to be careful not to miss the bus, I think. Mm, I mean, a lot of the people listening to this will be rejoiners is there any point whatsoever in having a rejoin campaign at, at this point or should rejoiners hold their fire for five ten years i, I you know i i mean i, I mean i i, I, I just, at the moment you know in, in the immediate term i think there definitely isn't isn't a isn't you know there's just no viable political space mm. for that um and so I mean, some people have different views about this. I know that in, you know, I think Ian Dunn kind of thinks this the rejoin could come onto the agenda reasonably quickly. Because I tend to think it's more a matter of, you know, a decade or or, or even more than a decade. And, you know, we shouldn't sort of forget. We sometimes, I sometimes, you know, kind of criticise Brexiters for a very parochial conversation. But Remainers also, you know, shouldn't be too parochial in the conversation. In sort of this idea of, you know, th thinking about this also from the perspective of the European Union and the EU twenty seven, and thinking, you know, what does rejoining look like from that point of view? And and if we sort of assume, and this, you know. This is obviously an assumption, but if we kind of assume that that the only route to rejoining would first be a referendum, and if we kind of anticipate that such a referendum would again be very bitterly contested, and I think that would be true even if it's in ten years' time, probably would again be very bitterly contested, and again give rise to um, perhaps a very kind of close result. Um, and 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 then you know even even after ten years, just to say, oh hi guys, well we're back again. Is that all right? Um, I think you know it does it does open some 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 really difficult issues, which is why I think you know both in terms of rejoining or not for that matter, which is why I think that intervening period needs to be used in order to create less hostile and less confrontational relationships between the UK and the EU. Um, in order to kind of, if you like, sort of prepare the ground for uh, any eventual rejoin. Exactly. Mm. The Leavers spent 40 years preparing the ground. Uh, you know, Remainers uh, are, are far too often very impatient. Um, so while I would agree that, you know, it, it's tone deaf to go for any kind of overt rejoin campaign right now, that doesn't mean that that groundwork shouldn't be starting and, and trying to you know, shift the political culture in that direction. But Naomi, in 40 years, I'll be 93. I don't have the time for this. We need to get moving. <laughs> Probably not. Let's move on. Let's do To the Barricades, our regular bit, where each week a Romaniacs regular lights the torches and loads the metaphorical trebuchet for an important cause. And this week, Naomi, it is your turn. What barricades are we rushing to this week? Well, I'm going to go back uh, to something we discussed at the top of the show around the package of funding for the arts and it not going um, as far as it needed to, particularly in relation to the artists themselves rather than the venues. And you might all have seen this, uh, but there's been a, a really good social media campaign happening over the last few days, which is hashtag Save the Arts UK, where artists have been, uh, you know, from the world of film and television, theatre, entertainment, um, and, and, you know, proper art you know paintings and stuff 
you can tell that I am such a cultural Philistine, um, uh, 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 posting photos of themselves doing their job with absolutely no um, description or context, but just in order to flood social media uh, with the professions uh, of the arts. And so, you know, I just think it, 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 they need a boost. They need to know that, that the country isn't uh, against them, that that we do want them to succeed. Um, and not least because, you know, I, I really need some new films to be made, having exhausted almost the entirety of Netflix. Um, and <laughs> that ain't going to happen uh, if, if these people can't get back to work. So, yeah, that's that's my my gentle to the barricades for listeners this week. Go and check out the hashtag Save uh, the Arts UK and, and give them lots of shares, retweets, likes, comments, etc. But don't go looking for pictures of podcasters at work because nobody needs to see those particular sorts of <laughs> This is a science, not an art. Finally, a quick handy roundup of the latest Brexit news. First up, a tale about cross-continental cooperation. Europol has announced that it's arrested hundreds of people on suspicion of serious crime, including drug trafficking and murder, after hacking into EncroChat, the secret criminal phone network. It was the biggest ever operation for our own national crime agency. European crime agencies work together to sift through tens of millions of encrypted messages, £54 million in cash, and over two tonnes of drugs have all been seized by police. Chris, what? here's a huge success story about cross-continental cooperation that we are going to be leaving. What's going to be happening to cybersecurity after Brexit? Will we still be able to do something like this? Um, yeah, well, one quick parenthesis to that, by the way, is that a lot of kind of cybersecurity work is also done in partnership between NATO and the European Union. And um, uh, which also, by the way, you know, people often say, oh, well, our security is to do with NATO as opposed to the EU. And, and that's not true. But look, um, the... I mean, the Europol thing is 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 also kind of interesting because it's it's really a lot of the security stuff has really taken a back a back seat in the Brexit debates, and Europol in fact kind of sits within a a, a range of things in terms of the EU's area uh, area of freedom, security, and justice (AFSJ), um, and so um, and so there's loads of um, loads of other things apart from from Europol, some things which which I think very few people will probably you know be um, aware of in terms of the European Strategic Communications Network, which is to do with um, violent, combating violent extremism, the European Asylum Support Office, the um, the EU Agency for Network and Information Security, and all of these things, um, you know, become problematic because of Brexit. And why? Not, I think, because they're a matter of great kind of public concern, but because somewhere lurking in the background is a role for the ECJ. And so that becomes just, uh, you know, anathema to this very hardline version of sovereignty. Hmm. And Nomi, we're, we're told that uh, Britain has been making impossible demands in the uh, in the negotiations, particularly with relation to Europol. Britain wants to approximate the position of a member state as closely as possible, mm. um, despite having left. I mean, this is, is this more cake? Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, UK negotiators in the Brexit talks are, are kind of confident that um, the country will still cooperate with the EU in justice and home affairs uh, matters that can still lead to arrest and, and prosecution of criminals. But those working in intelligence and security services want to share data with their counterparts in other countries after Brexit. But UK politicians are really uncomfortable with this for the for the reasons uh, that Chris mentioned, because um, it means that this kind of UK security activity would be supervised by the European courts, um, though, you know, 
They might be happy to look after EU data, but they're much less happy to have uh, investigators from those countries accessing UK data. And the EU itself is, of course, you know, understandably pretty suspicious of uh, UK data protection law and procedures. So if if there's a lack of reciprocity, um, it it could give EU-based investigators, uh, you know, reason to give us very low priority for requests for assistance um, and things like that. Requests to Interpol for information are unlikely likely to run as smoothly as they would do if we were still members of the European arrest warrant and European information orders, um, unless there is seen to be very significant UK investment into technology and personnel, uh, into world policing. Um, So as ever, you know, Brexit is just making us less safe, less secure, less likely to be able to convict criminals uh, who flee our shores and who we want to bring back to stand um, trial. And really the best I think we can hope for is that police officers will work together across borders regardless, and that politicians will just have to play catch up and and legislate to legalise their operation if it is looking like it would lead to a successful penetration of criminal networks. Finally, a bulletin from ultra-Brexiteers, the Leave Alliance, who have, this is a bit late of them, admitted they're now heavily sceptical of Brexit and the mess it will surely be. This is quotes. But we are where we are, they say, primarily because we had to fight for it three times. Voting in good faith in a referendum wasn't enough. Remainers own this mess as much as the Tories. So, Ben, there we are. It's all our fault. Will you be apologising on behalf of us to the Leave Alliance? No, I shall not. Um, the health warning on the Leave Alliance, it's, it's Pete North and it's Dav Richard. This is not a movement of millions they have a you know they have a twitter account um and that's about it this is not matthew elliott recanting and say i think brexit is going to be a mess i've followed <laughs> richard's career with interest for many years because he's written a lot of batshit crazy stuff on climate in the telegraph so i think we can file this one under life's too short ignore them um everyone else does but ben they're an alliance they're an alliance, they're an alliance. Too. i'm also an alliance with my father um yeah, it's just just ignore them a heartwarming tale there. So we've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. We're building our way back to Europe, even only notionally and in our minds with a piece of architecture that we promise will never be turned into a Witherspoons. Chris Gray, if you're building our imaginary virtual Brexit bridge back to Europe, what would you like to place in as an, an imaginary virtual brick? Well, it, I, my suggestion, I think, is a very sort of low-key one, but it, it goes back to the, the point I, I made earlier about, about the idea of... Um, of 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 trying you know to 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 normalize and make more positive relations with europe and my my idea is to um put renewed emphasis on the um on twin towns um and i think maybe we think about these twin towns in terms of you know you just see a sort of a, a nameplate on the on the roadside as you drive into a town saying twinned with such and such a place but it actually has quite a long history it has a history that that, that goes back um uh, you know, even longer than this, but it, it became um, it became quite an intense activity after the Second World War as a means of kind of um, of reconciliation and making kind of connections. Um, uh, and um, you know, the most famous example probably is Coventry twinning with both uh, Stalingrad, as as it was then called, and with mm. Dresden, which of course had also kind of been uh, bombed. And this is is a habit which a practice which has fallen into some disrepair even before Brexit. There were re- reports as far back as 2012. But you know, it can be an infrastructure for things like you know, visits, exchanges, business contacts, all those kinds of things. And you know, even if the the, the politicians are what are doing whatever they're doing at their political level, you know, there's no reason why. 
people as individual citizens and as civic organizations and grassroots organizations can't be, uh, well, you know, literally you know, building bridges uh, with their counterparts in the European Union. So that's maybe slightly kind of um, uh, not a very sort of dramatic part of the bridge, but it might be a useful little bit of scaffolding. I, I agree wholeheartedly. West Lancashire, where I grew up, uh, had a sign on the end of the road that said, twinned with Sergi Pontoise. And I've only just looked it up, and it turns out that there's nothing there. So enormously appropriate there, twinned <laughs> with Sergi Pontoise. <laughs> and that's the end of the show. Chris Gray, thanks very much for joining us. It's Thank been illuminating you. and good fun. Thank you very much for uh, Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Naomi and Ben. Um, we get, we're getting ready for the uh, the live stream tomorrow night, Thursday night, which, if you're listening on Friday, of course, is in the dim and distant past. So we will see you there. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Yeah, thanks uh, from me to Elizabeth Fiddeman, Christopher Scott, James Dunning, Sarah Money and Ben Haldenby. And many thanks from me to Matt Spicer, Lucien Kenny, Dave Furlong, Lizzie Darville and Bridget McNamara. And finally, a big shout out from me to Robert Hinton, Patrick Parker, Alex Calder, Robert Reed, and the best name of the week, she's not cancelled as far as we're concerned, Jane Glastonbury. Yay! Romaniacs was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ben Stewart and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Jake Bargebold, and Romaniacs is Podmasters Production.